Hello and welcome back to another episode of Losing Part of Me. In this episode, I interview the very lovely Josh Connolly. Now, Josh came into my life through somebody else I know who was sober and they just happened to share something on social media which I clicked on and decided to give a go. Basically Josh has a programme that he runs a couple of times a year and it was being advertised to be run in January 23. Obviously I had just become sober. And basically this program isn't about becoming sober, it's actually about your own kind of healing journey and discovering yourself a bit more. And he talks about in it, which we talk about in the interview, the little yous and the little versions of you. And you would have heard me talk about this in another episode, how this for me was quite pivotal in my recovery and my empathy towards myself. And this program was so well-timed for me to do it at that point of becoming sober. And it actually turned out to be just the thing I needed. It really was a a way in which I could slow down and start to understand myself and have huge empathy for myself. It was a great programme. So I really wanted him to come on and talk about that because it was so pivotal in my journey, but also because he is sober himself. So we talk about his own sober journey and how it wasn't all sunshine and roses, a bit like mine. It was difficult and hard and took some time to get through to the good bit. He also talks about how getting sober started his own healing journey. So he didn't heal and then get sober. As he got sober, he really started to develop and change and have a real healing journey of his own, which I really resonate with and feel that that was something that really happened to me. He also shares how his addiction now can transfer onto other things, which I think is a really interesting thing to just bear in mind because I saw it happen with me. And he talks about how sometimes his addiction can transfer onto things that society deems as good, like going to the gym or eating a really strict diet, and how that isn't always something that should be congratulated. And obviously it's around what is going on in our head rather than the thing that we're doing. But overall, I think this conversation is really honest and frank, and Josh is a really, really cool guy. I really enjoy following him and consuming his content. He also has a podcast, which is really, really interesting. I was really glad that he agreed to come onto the podcast and talk to me and hope that you enjoy this episode. I am super pleased to have you on the podcast today. Welcome to the podcast, Josh. Thank you. Uh, Looking forward to it. I'm excited for the conversation. I am very excited. There's so much that I'm ready to talk to you about and hear you talk about. And in research for this podcast, as I mentioned, I have another podcast, which when I interviewed those people, in truth, I just rocked up and knew I'd get the conversation going. But I decided to be a professional and do some proper research to this podcast. And I have binged many, many, many episodes of your podcast which, by the way, I don't think it's meant to be, but it's actually hilarious at points. Like, no, it's meant to be. Yeah, I'm glad good. you find it funny. Yeah, we, we were trying to go, di- you know, difficult conversations with a bit of a laugh as well, yeah. Honestly, like, I just need to say things like wrestling and Owen Hart. 
like I went down a whole rabbit hole of googling what happened to him and watching YouTube videos like who knew that was going to happen when I was doing that Um, because my brother was a huge wrestling fan which meant because I was closer to his age I kind of watched it as well so the names you were saying like The Undertaker (laughs) and Hulk Hogan it's like I was like oh my god that is such a blast of my childhood um not going to the cinema with friends. I'm with you there. Oh, do you he know I got I got I got I got hammered for that on online. Are you serious? Yeah, no, I lost. I posted a video about it and lost about a thousand people unfollowed me <laughs> within 24 hours. So. You are kidding! <laughs> people are funny, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. um, not making friends on holiday. Now I wonder whether this is a more female thing. I think like women are good at making friends on holidays. Uh, although genuinely I'm a bit like you that it's like now, no, thanks. I don't want to talk to you. I yeah. don't want to make friends with me. I don't want to get involved in anything. No. Like just leave me alone. I'm fine. Um, and then uh, the would you rathers were hilarious. And you wanting to be nine inches tall, although you weren't entirely sure how big nine inches was, which was <laughs> brilliant as well. Like, honestly, I was I was having such a laugh. So, <laughs> but one thing that occurred to me when I was doing all your research, right? So you are, you come across as a very authentic person, very like you are what you see, like, you know, just the way you show up. And one thing that kind of struck me was I imagined little Josh at school having a conversation because when I was at school and I'm 44 and I suspect you're a bit younger than me, but having a conversation with a careers advisor and could you imagine little Josh going to careers advisor saying what I really want to do when I grow up is be a mental health advocate, a resilience coach and basically talk about inner child work. (laughs) Like, I just want to go back there. Is that something little Josh would do? No, it would definitely didn't come up in the careers meeting if I turned up for the careers meeting, if I'm honest with you. Um, no, he's, I mean, it's like I have to pinch myself for what I'm doing. I mean, even if you asked 21-year-old Josh if if if, mm. if he thought I'd be doing this, I, I wouldn't have thought so. Um, so, no, I mean, look, what I would say is that looking back, I do believe that there was a part of me internally that always existed, that always had a feeling and a kind of knowing and a belief that maybe there was something else out there for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, certainly certainly wouldn't have believed I'll be doing what I'm doing now. Yeah, yeah. So when, at what point did that all start change? Because again, in my binge listening back, it was things like you were working at a factory at one point. Obviously the, the key bit, for me, hearing your story was the point in you getting sober. Was it 11 years ago now? Yeah, I got sober in 2012, May 2012, yeah. And did you see that as part of your journey or was that just a byproduct? No, I guess that sort of, that is where the whole sort of journey started for me. I mean, like a lot of people talk about sobriety and, and uh, you know, quitting drink and then running off into the sunset and their life getting amazing. I quit alcohol and I had a brief period of like a month or two where it was incredible. But after that, my I, I don't think I've ever struggled with life as much as I did after yeah. that. You know, I, I was just left with everything that I'd used alcohol to suppress ultimately. And I found it really difficult. And I was nine, I was nine months sober when 
I very seriously planned not to be here anymore. And it was only an experience with my children that sort of changed to that course. And I think it was after that, that I'd say my active healing journey really started, you know, so around uh, coming up to a year sober, that's when I really actually thought, you know what, I need to, I need to work on myself here. And that's been, that's when the journey started. And the reason just quickly, the reason I say active healing journey is because I now realize when I found alcohol and drugs at 12 years old, I, I, that was that was an attempt to heal. Right? It was a, I was looking for a solution. I was trying to find a way to, 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 to make life more manageable. So although I wasn't sort of actively engaged in that, I do look back and see that as, a, as an attempt, a solution, if that makes sense. Yeah, you were trying to manage and that helped you manage. Yeah. So when you were coming up to getting sober, was it a gradual thing was it a working on it thing or was it just like a light bulb in your head actually this isn't working for me anymore no uh, probably a little bit of both I mean I I'd spent a long time trying to control it like yeah. my obsession was to be able to drink like everybody else right mm -hmm. um but I knew like my mum had said for me from a very young age I lost my dad as a result of his drinking when I was like nine and my mum had said to me from a very very young age I don't know what she used to say. I don't know much about life, but I tell you one thing I do know. And that is if you find yourself struggling to control your drinking, you'll never, ever learn how to control it and you need to quit. Your dad, I watched your dad try everything under the sun to control it and he couldn't. He either didn't drink or he drank to oblivion. And so that was always in the back of my mind. And then... It, I was very fortunate, really. A series of life events sort of led me down the path of thinking, well, I think the game's up. I've got I've got to stop alcohol now, yeah. Mm. I think that is something, and I, I guess, you know, I am very new early doors as we speak at the moment. I am about eight and a half months sober, which oh, wow. sometimes feels like is long enough, and other times I feel like that is this is, I am not long enough in the game to be having this conversation. But actually one of the things I'm trying to do with this podcast and, and with these conversations is kind of almost show people at different parts of their journey. And, and I think you said a couple of things that are so, so key that I want to pick up on. The first one is the trying to moderate was the most exhausting thing in the world. And you genuinely feel what I did, like something is wrong with me. There are all these people who can drink and and I started to see it on every TV program I watched. Like suddenly that was the only thing I could see. Like they sit down, they have a glass of wine with dinner or they have, pick up a brandy or whatever it is. And I just used to think, why can't I? And I think I went through all kind of emotions of like, it's not fair. Like, why is it that I have this problem and not other people, you know, or, and I don't know if this ever came across you, but or as time's gone on and I've not drank, I have almost thought to myself, oh, I, th I think I'd probably be all right now. And I have to remind myself, I absolutely would not be all right now. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's the, like, a, it's very common to think that I'd be all right now, you know, and I, mm. but, but I only have to look at, I mean, let me be clear on this, over the, over 11 years now, I've watched people get sober, became friends with people that have got sober and watched people stay sober and then, think I'll be all right I had a friend recently and he won't mind me saying I won't say his name but he was 12 and a half years sober wow started drinking again during the Euros the football tournament mm. 
seemed all right, did all right. Within two months, he was back. He was, you know, he was nearly sectioned. Um, because yeah. I think the key thing to understand is that it still progresses, you know. So mm-hmm. you, you you won't go back to where you started. You'll go back to where you would have been if you if you carried on to this point. And I've seen yeah. that happen too much. And I think normally the times when I'm convincing myself that I think I'd be all right, that they're never, they never come when everything's brilliant and I feel really comfortable and good. They only ever come when I'm a little bit, there's stuff going on and I'm trying to convince, I'm trying to, trying to, you know, draw up a way out. That's the truth. That's my, you know, that's my truth. And yeah, yeah. Mine too. And I look, people say to me, if you drank tonight, then would you just go straight off the rails? And I think, no, if I drank tonight, I'd probably have to, and then go, wow, look, amazing. I'm all right. But, yeah. Very, very quickly. I I just know, I know from the way that I use everything else, food, mm-hmm. and you know, I'm I'm recently actually about six months no sugar. I heard um, you give up sugar. Yeah, how's yeah. that going? Amazing. But and it's very much like you just described with alcohol, right? You get clear on it, and you think, why have I convinced myself that that sugar is some kind of treat? Right? And, and and the truth is, is that I was addicted to it because now. The only time I think about a chocolate bar or a bit of cake is when I feel down or a bit tired or a bit sad mm. because sugar, like refined sugar I'm talking about, yeah, so not in yeah, fruit yeah. and stuff like that, but refined sugar is it's just another drug that we get hooked on and that, that works in the moment, you know? And I think mm. I get addicted to anything. I know that much, yeah? So something yeah. like alcohol that really does m- alter my mind, I've got no hope. I've got no chance of controlling it. I, I know that more than anything now. And if I was... If I was to ever pick it up, and I say this to my wife, if ever I told you I'm going to drink, just know no matter what I tell you, yeah, no matter what reason I give you, the truth behind all of that is that I've had enough and I'm giving up, you know? Yeah. And that's yeah. the truth. Yeah, and you're so right. And I think I had to kind of use that that thought of, I'd probably be all right with the drink now, as the the sort of, you know, push to go, no, that means you've got a problem because no one who is not caring about alcohol is sitting there going, I could probably be all right. I'd probably, you know, I'll be fine with a glass of wine. Like they're just not thinking about it. And the fact that I'm thinking about it and thinking, oh, you know, I'd really like a glass of wine and therefore I'd probably be fine. But I spoke to a friend the other day and there's very few people at the point that we're recording this that know that I am not drinking because I built an entire brand on being someone that drinks. Literally pictures on my website are me drinking. Like, like I used to do a live on a Thursday night called GNT with T. Like literally everything was built around it. So at this point I've kept it very private and part of me sharing it is this podcast. And I saw a friend the other day and he was like, so is, is that it then? Like, and he genuinely looked like they was telling me I couldn't walk anymore. And I was like, yeah. So what you don't even think you like, can you not just have like nights where you drink? And I'm like, no, because I know, and I want the oblivion. I want the feeling. So like, yeah, I like the taste. Yeah. I love a gin and tonic. I like the wine or whatever, but actually the only reason I'd want to drink now is to just step off the world for a bit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that is no reason to have a drink. And one thing that I found, I'd be interested to see if, if it was something you struggled with was I looked for other things to replace it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. how else can I step off the world? Yeah, well, look, I can tell you I've done 11 and a half years and I still do that. But, yeah. I, you know, and I find greater ways to trick and deceive myself into thinking I'm not. And I'll pick addictions that people don't call you out on. I mean, I get mm-hmm. addicted to, to helping people, right? I get addicted to being a nice person or 
addicted to other types of behaviors, right? Uh, get get yourself addicted to um, exercise. You'll only ever yeah. get complimented for it. You know, yeah. like there was a period of time where I was counting my calories down to a gram, right? If I put one extra bit of rice on my plate, like all how would break loose. And, you know, I ended up getting a bit of a chiseled frame and everybody's saying, I wish I could be like you. And I'm thinking, do you? Yeah. Because cause I'm not happy when I look in the mirror, right? I'm always looking for that extra bit. So like, like, like addiction's a very sort of complex and deceiving thing. And, it, uh, and I think we have to be compassionate for the ones that we do pick up, you know? I think mm -hmm. we get a bit carried away with thinking the goal needs to be that I need to reach enlightenment and, and never be addictive with anything, right? And mm -hmm. I'm not there yet. I mean, my life has improved greatly, but I'm certainly not there yet. And I, I don't know if I ever will be. I don't know if mm -hmm. I'll ever, I, I don't know if I'll ever will be. And, and I'm, I'm sort of okay with that, you know, most days. So you got some help when you first gave up alcohol. Is that, or when you first came sober, is that something that you continued with? Is that something that did you for a certain amount of time? Or how how do you manage now, I guess, that much further on? Because I think, so I did a couple of um, meetings. I went along and to see what they were like. And initially I was like, first one, I was like, oh, these people are not my people. And of course you do. I was looking at these people going, oh no, I'm not like you. And then yeah. they all speak. And then you're like, I'm exactly like you. I just don't want to admit it. And then I spoke to one of my coaches that I work with and she was like, I think you need to go to at least like 10. You need to, to try different ones. And, and I tried different ones. And anyway, after trying lots of them, I decided that actually it was almost making me think about it more and more and more. And, and felt a little bit counterintuitive for me. But one of the things that put me off was there was a woman on one of them and she said she was 21 years sober. And all I could think was, and you're still here. Yeah. Like you're still showing up. Please God tell me that in 21 years time, I won't be still going, you know, I need a drink. Cause that would, I, I just don't know what I would do with that. So. Was there like a natural point in which you were like, okay, I've moved on with what I can. Yeah, I think, so I went, like when I got sober, I was 24, I was living on my own. Uh, I had children that would come on the weekend, but every, my life was built around the pub and drinking. So I had nothing and nobody. So I went mm -hmm. to a meeting in the end for a while, like every night for, for, for quite a few years. Um, and in many ways, because I didn't have anything else to do and, and yeah. I didn't know how to be in my mind and in my head and all that sort of stuff. And there was a natural progression after a number of years where um, I sort of just progressed out of that. And a bit like you said, where I started to look at some of the things that were driving why I drank. And so like, I, I, like I, did, I got to a place where I don't think about alcohol anymore. You know, people say to me, like, do you ever, do you still think about it or does it come into your head to drink it again? And to be honest with you, it really doesn't. But that doesn't mean that I don't sometimes think, cool, I wish I could drink a pint of liquid and all my problems go away. Yeah. You know, so like I've really, like it's, it's, it's really, life is really difficult when you don't have, because I won't take anything other than like a paracetamol, you know, an ibuprofen, mm -hmm. a caffeine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and when you don't have any substance, 
to just have, I see, I've got mates who have a, a, a much healthier relationship with alcohol. who don't ruin their life when they have it. And I, you know, I see them get a bit built up and have a big blowout on a Friday night or whatever. And then they're all right. Yeah. And I don't blame people for doing that, but no. I just know that that's not how it works for me. And mm -hmm. so like, I think I progressed and do, I, you know, I run a men's space once a month, which is really important. I've built communities of people around me in different ways. Uh, but I do need that regular connecting in with a community where I present my true self and be witnessed and reflect and mm -hmm. all of that. I really, I really, really do need that perhaps more than the average person, you know? And so yeah. I'm all, I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to say is that I'm always doing something um, yeah. because I do need it. I do need it. Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, I've done a lot of mindfulness work and I, I've qualified as a coach and spent all last year doing my qualification and stuff. And I think people think that when you know about these things, when you know about resilience and, you know, yourself and your inner work and, you know, all these different things that suddenly life is easy and wonderful and brilliant. And you walk around like you're on cloud nine all the time. And it's like, no, not at all. Like this year from, from a work point of view, I've almost stepped out and everything's still running. I've still shown up where I've had to show up, I've still done my thing. But trying to explain, and even to my own husband, the energy it's taken to not drink. And he kind of, he's a very practical man. And he looks at it like, well, it wasn't like you were drinking all day, every day. So why, like, why in a morning would you be thinking about it? Or why in a morning would you be, you know, would that take energy? And it's like, all this work, doing all this work on yourself takes so much energy. It's like one of the hardest things to do. And it never stops. Yeah. It never, you'll never get to a point. I mean, we could only wish and hope, but you're never going to get to a point, I don't think, where you're like, that's it, got it all sussed. I'm amazing now. No. Like, you no, know, and that is the, the, but, but that's the thing, right? And, and, and like leading and coaching and all of that stuff, it, it's a great hiding place, mm. you know, because I'm an expert. Like, I'll answer any question on the inner work, any question, yeah. and I'll answer it well with a, with a real clear understanding. But, understand it's different to doing do you know what i mean i think i, I was talking about gabor before we came on here but he yeah. i remember somebody saying to him you have so much self-knowledge like how have you built that up and he said i have a lot of knowledge of myself but that's different to self-knowledge and mm -hmm. i'm like that's me you know because yeah. i realized I, like i say i run a men's group yeah i re we was running i've been running it for about a year so like six or seven months ago and I was like, I'm getting all of these lads here to do all of this work. And I ain't doing none of it because I'm leading. I'm hiding. Yeah. I'm hiding, leading, you know. And it, it, uh, a guy called John Bradshaw, not with us anymore, but he, his work's amazing. He says, there's a door. Um, there's a door that takes you to heaven. And there's a door that takes you to learn about heaven. And he said, and we're all queuing up at the door to learn about it. When we, yeah. when we should be walking through the door to go and do it. And, you know. That's my truth. I, I know. I know beyond any measure um, how often I, I I hide in my leadership role, you know, so that I don't have to do the work myself, and I have to call myself yeah. out as much as I, or, or not call myself out because that sounds too harsh. But I have to compassionately notice that about myself so that I can work on it, you know. Mm. And I think I'm exactly the same. It's like because we're doing it right. So I do mindset sessions in my day job and obviously do coaching and things. And because I'm constantly in that world, 
you kind of convince yourself, well, I'm I'm doing that, like I'm in it. So obviously I'm doing it. It's like, well, no, leading a group doing something or coaching someone on something isn't you doing the work. And I think one thing that I'm a big advocate of and one thing I talk about a lot is I'll talk about the fact that I have my own therapist and I have therapy every week and and I do the work. And I think that is the thing, like, it, you know, understanding how much this takes and how uncomfortable it is. And again, on the podcast, I love the fact that you say get comfortable because we're about to get uncomfortable because yeah. it is like this stuff is not fun. It's not easy. It's not, you know, it's not enjoyable, but actually when you start to really look at it and, and I just want to go back to Gabor actually, because he, for me was, I read his book. So I was in therapy for three years before with the same therapist before I stopped drinking. And she basically said to me, she knew it from day one, but I couldn't have ever even acknowledged it. I wouldn't have even entered a conversation about it because I was so like, yeah, no, we're not talking about that. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not getting involved. And it took all that time to get to the point where eventually we could start to work on it. But she had read The Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Gabor's book. And she said to me, I'm reading this book and because she knows I do a lot of work and I do a lot of reading and she's like, I think I want you to read it, but let me finish it first. So she finished it and she went, I definitely want you to read it. Go away and read it. So I went away and read it and she'd been telling me for a long time and it, this kind of leads on to some of the work that you do. It's not your fault. It's not your fault you do this thing. It's not your fault you have learned to cope in that way and that's the way you cope. And I just thought, and I actually said to her, you know what you're doing? You're leading me to go, when I get absolutely smashed, go, wasn't my fault. Like almost like this petulant child of like, no, I couldn't help it, you said. Like, anyway, I read Gabor's book and first off, it was so fascinating because the addiction he's talking about felt so much harder than mine. Like it felt, I felt like, well, that's real addiction. Mine's nothing. This isn't anything until he gave his example of his addiction. And it was a bit like you were saying before, and I'm trying not to smile when I say it because like, it's not funny, his addiction, but it kind of would be perceived as funny. So basically, for those of you who have not read it, do it's an amazing book, but he has an addiction to buying uh, classical music. And he goes and buys his CDs and he'll go all the time. And he didn't tell his wife and he was spending all this money and it was really expensive. And and he, in fact, in one point in the book, he said that he had missed a uh, delivering a baby because he'd gone to buy some music rather than being where he should have been. And it wasn't until he got to that point that I was like, oh, it's all the same. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's it's the same. And the same as you've said, like some things people will pat you on the back for, like looking amazing, going to the gym or, you know, like getting addicted to work or getting addicted to something that would seem positive. It's all the same. Like, and it just, that bit just kind of went, ah, oh, okay. That, yeah. That makes perfect sense. And I think that's like... Uh... From that book, I actually read um, Chasing the Scream by Johan Harry, which was one of oh, his I older books. It's often not like that's how I found out about Gabor when I read that book because he mentions him in there. Um, but I read that and I, that it just made so much sense to me straight away. Like, because when I first started looking at my own alcohol addiction, I just looked at that as the problem. I've just got a problem. It's an addiction problem. So I've got to live the rest of my life trying to deal with my addiction. And as long as I don't drink, everything will be all right. And very, very quickly, you know, every behavior or thought that I'd had when I was drinking that I used to blame, well, it's because I drank too much. When you start doing that stuff and you haven't had a drink, then you're like, well, 
I've got an even deeper problem here because the problem because I can't blame alcohol now. I'm still doing some of that stuff, and then that's what really took me on the journey. And then I, people say to me all the time, you know, uh, yeah, but this isn't you. You don't have to worry about that because it's not addictive. And I'm like, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't. Right. If it solves a problem in my life, you best believe. Yes, I, I will get addicted to it. You know, and yeah. so I, you know, it's crazy the amount of things I get addicted to, and then I come off of them. I'm drinking a Pepsi Max at the moment. You know, mm-hmm. at the height of that, I can do four or five of them a day. You and know, you know what I've recently realised that I have got to really be careful of myself because again, it starts to shine a light on everything, and I. Some people listen to this and think this is stupid, but Netflix series, yeah. anything that goes immediately into another one, I am like not sleeping. I will put it on and I have to finish it. It's like, it's like some crazy thing. That, and I found myself, I was watching Ted Lasso, which I freaking love by the way. Um, but I was watching Ted Lasso. I took a whole day out of my business, which I wasn't meant to take because Oh, I'll just watch the next one. I'll just watch the next one. I'll just watch the next one. To the point where I'm now thinking, do you know what? I don't think I can start series like that again because it consumes me because I can <laughs> switch off my brain. It's my one attempt to to zone out, to, yeah. to not be on the planet. And like you said, you start realizing mm-hmm. that, oh, that's because I immediately went into food. Like food has always been a big thing for me, but I immediately went into suddenly, and I'm celiac, so I'm gluten-free, can't eat gluten. I ate gluten for literally like most of this year. And I get in every week to my therapist and she'd be like, we're not going to worry about that. We know you shouldn't, but right now your main thing is don't drink, right? And, And so there was a lot of forgiveness for that and a lot of work I had to do around not beating myself up for eating gluten. And now we're at the point where I'm not eating the gluten again. That's great. But it's like, but I can almost see, you know, I'm trying to get healthier and I can almost see that starting to become my main focus and my main thing that I look on. And I think you're right. Anything we can put in place to take away having to think or feel about other things absolutely can turn into it. Totally, totally. So you and I met because we have a mutual uh, friend, Debs, who is amazing and we love her very much. Uh, and Debs was, works with you and she's done some work with me and done some training and things for me. And Debs shared your Inner You course that you do, a program that you run. How many times a year do you run it now? Three times a year Three. normally, yeah. And she shared it. And I had spoken to Debs, actually. Very few people, like I said, knew that I'd stopped drinking. But I had noticed that Debs had shared some content about her not drinking. And I DM'd her very early on, like literally in the first few days. And kind of just, you know, asked a couple of questions, opened up the conversation, didn't divulge to what degree I was at, but basically just said, you know, I don't think I should probably drink and I'm stopping. And and we had some really good conversations and actually it was lovely. And when she shared that thing, I replied to her and said, what's this like? And she was like, do it. It's amazing and brilliant and you should do it. Yeah. And so that's how you came into my world. I did your interview program in the January where I just got sober on the 2nd of January. Oh, wow. And it's like, for, the way I describe getting sober is like the stars aligned, okay? At that one point on that one day and that one thing, my brain went, now's your chance. And I almost feel like I can't ever take another sip because 
my brain did it on that day and went, here's your chance. And if I dare to even consider drinking again, I'm off again. And I don't know when that could possibly happen, but it's almost like the drinking thing kicked in because I was only going to do dry January. Like that's all I allowed myself to say I would do. And then I found the inner you stuff and it was phenomenal. Okay. Now I have done a lot of stuff. I've done breath work before. So it includes a few different things, which I'll let you explain, but I'd done breath work before, but only in person. So when she said you lie in your house and you do breathe in and then you scream at the end, I was like, are you crazy? Like, I am not doing this. Like literally I had to say to my stepson and my husband and my daughter, right. About nine, half nine, you're going to hear me scream. Just ignore it. Right. But it honestly was like the best thing I've done. It was so, so good. And one of the things for me that was the best and the thing I really want you to focus on for me when you explain this is the work you do about the the little yous, right? Because my therapist also talks about little yous. I have a fuck you, Teresa, right? Fuck you, Teresa is so powerful. She will fight anybody on anything. If you tell me I can't do something, fuck you, Teresa's coming up. And she is like, you want to bet? And she used to be the person who would have all the drinks and eat all the food. And I didn't realize that she was the person who also made me successful in my business. Because when I started my business, family members said to me, well, if it doesn't work, you can always get a job. And fuck you, Teresa heard that. And she went, oh, I don't think so. (laughs) And so like, I had done a bit of work on this, but you had kind of like bought it all together. And it was just stunning so i've rattled on for a little bit there but explain to us about the inner you uh program that you do and then the parts the different parts of us and how that works yeah so the 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 process is essentially like a six-week process to understand who you are in the world today why you show up in that way we look at your past relationships and ultimately you're working towards going to get that little you that um so that you can become their champion and it's a sort of like accumulation of all the work of all the different types of work that I've done from from 12 step work to some work from John Bradshaw um to some stuff I did with John Paul Crimi um to and then the 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 mask piece that you're talking about or the parts of yourself that exist is born out of something called internal family systems which is Mm -hmm. originates from a guy called Richard Schwartz um and I think that's one of the biggest weeks for a lot of people because you start to realize actually every part of me that exists exists for a reason. And that reason is to try and keep me safe and to try and protect me. And if I can get a hold of that and understand that on a, on a deeper level, then I have an opportunity to be the sort of the master of my life. I can take a lot of power back into my life. Um, and so, yeah, I guess like the most obvious one that people resonate with that I always use to describe it is the the inner critic, because I think it's the most common one that everyone tends to have. Um, and you have a critical part and most people would say shut the inner critic up don't listen to it I don't know what it's talking about um, and this sort of disagrees with that and says listen to the inner critic get to know it uh, try to make it feel safe and ask why it exists and what you'll find I think with most people's inner critic anyway is that it's terrified of shame and mm-hmm. it wants to stop you doing it because it's worried that if you do it you're going to feel shame and once you understand that you can start to look at that bit of yourself more compassionately and then start to make that part feel safe by rather than trying to shut it up by saying, I, I appreciate that you're here. And, you know, I built in a you because my critical part wouldn't let me, wouldn't let me do anything that I didn't think was amazing, you know? So, 
it serves a purpose. And I think when you learn that about all of your parts, you can start to see why they exist, how old they think you are. And it's really, really enlightening stuff. And I'm very proud of Inner You, actually, because of the experiences that people have with it. You know, it's got such a high completion rate when people do it. Um, Hugely high. Bearing yeah. in mind that my day job is online businesses. And when I kept rocking up to the Zoom calls and I was like, look how many people are attending live every week. Yeah. Like, it was brilliant really really good yeah and there's people that turn up live at two o'clock in the morning their time and turn up live every week for six weeks to do it at two o'clock yeah. i mean the community aspect of it is a really sort of a big part for, for for a lot of people as well um to sort of witness other people and to understand that you're not alone in your experience i think is really big so that's why it's never gone as a like an online go away and do because i do yeah, think the community right. aspect can be is such a important part even if you don't turn up to the lives and you watch the recordings mm. i still get feedback where people say i didn't come to one live session but to be a part of it and to know that that live session happens that week and it was a group of people it was really it was really good so so yeah it's it's it, i'm just it's always it lights me up to hear people have such big life-changing experiences from it you know <laughs> When I talk to people about like little me's, right? And like you said, often the age, and this is something that, you know, and obviously it's very helpful when I obviously have someone one-to-one -one that I can talk this stuff through with. And often she will say to me, how old do you think they are? And when I think about how old they are, they're never adults, okay? No. So like, they're always little parts. And like you said, and I think I've heard you say on your podcast that basically, and I, you said it in one of the ones I listened to yesterday, that something you know as a child you're born as a baby you're born and you don't have these parts like these you know you don't have the cynicism of the world or the anger at the world or whatever these parts might be and something happens in your world and like what amazes me and scares me to death having a daughter and stepchildren is that it can be the most inane thing like it could be a moment in school or like the things that we remember as as adults that happened to us when we were younger, but then that one moment in time shifted something and we realized, you know, actually if I do this thing, like my, one of my many roles is the comedian. Yes. I am the person in my family because I had two older sisters. I have a younger brother who's special needs and I got missed out. I got forgotten about. And therefore the way that I could not be forgotten was by being funny and being loud and being the joker and the you know person who entertained everybody because that got me attention and even as today that is still me and and one thing that's fascinating is the overindulgent the out there loud funny me isn't someone that looks after themselves because they're more about having good fun than anything else like you know we live like there's no tomorrow type thing and it's only starting to dawn on me now that actually I'm having to, to, to do a lot of work around. You don't need to do that anymore. Yeah. Like that was that. And actually, you know, because I'm now not drinking, a whole part of my identity stepped away. And it was like, oh God, what if I'm like fun Bobby or friends? And I was only fun when I drank <laughs> and now I'm absolutely miserable. And like, so then I had to start working out. And, it, and literally just the other week, I had this conversation of, oh my God, what if I am that person who really cares about themselves? What if I am the person who wants to go to the gym and likes to drink herbal tea and is in bed by 10 o'clock? Like, 
I never thought I could be that person because I guess I'd always acted the other person. But it's the thing that I love the most about it is there's a few bits in in the stuff that you do, but one, it's the empathy and the kindness that we give to those parts because exactly what you said, we're taught to kind of shut them up and it's not about shutting them off. It's about going, thank you. And sometimes I feel really stupid. Like, do you ever think, God, people must think I'm crazy. Like, thank you, little Teresa. No, I know what you're trying to do. Like, <laughs> No, people do think I'm crazy. I don't think people think they are. Think I, am. I think my wife thinks I'm crazy half the time with, with some of the work that I do. Yeah, I do. And like, I'm very much like you. Yeah, Like, I mean, it was a long time ago now. So it sort of feels a little bit different. But like, I was Josh from the Wii right? The Wheat Sheaf, Josh from the Wheat Sheaf. I was a, just a record. I didn't do anything but but drink, you know? Yeah. And so to be the person that I am today and into the things that I am today, and I have become everything that I believed a boring person was, mm. but I've never loved my life more. And that like, that's the difference. What's fun changes. You know, I get invited to social events and I'm like, no, nah, I don't want to come to that. And people get offended, by the way. People don't like it, you know, when they no. they say, can you come here? And I say, no, nah, it's not my thing. And they're like, what, it's a, it's a party. And I'm like, yeah, no, nah, not my thing. And they have to make themselves pity you. And I think often it's because they think, wow, I wish I could do that. I mm. wish I could just, and like, I love, I've got kids and stuff now. Like, you know, I've always had kids actually, but um, the commitment I give to them now you yeah. know, like I watch, I love boxing. It's on late on a Saturday night. This is just one example. And so once upon a time, it would be get the kids to bed so I can have a good drink because the boxing's on. Mm-hmm. Whereas now it's like kids boxing's on Saturday night and they don't stay up and watch all of it. But we get loads yeah. of treats in. We make it a big thing. Everything yeah. I do now is a family. It's my kids are, it, because mm. I don't drink. So I don't need to get them out of the way. So I have no yeah. reason ever in my life to want to get my kids, apart from sometimes when I'm tired, I think every parent's sometimes tired yeah, of things. Let's get, to, let's get yeah, them to bed. No, like, of course, yeah. But most <laughs> of the time, I'm like, if I can't involve my kids, I, no, I don't want to do it. I'll, I, yeah. I'm going to go and do stuff with the family, you know? And that's because I don't have drink in the way, you know? Mm-hmm. And we go for these big, long days out to big events, sporting events, and I can drive and yeah. like hire a minibus and, like you don't have to worry about the money because you would have normally have spent that on drink anyway and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not going to drink so it's like my, what is fun to me now is beyond comprehension to a lot of people who use alcohol mm-hmm. because that's yeah. the it, and in so like fair play listen i'm not taking it away from people i think it works for people and i'm not saying they don't have fun it's just not my type of fun and as much as they look at me and think what a shame you don't get to drink anymore i look at them and think what a shame you drink all the time. Yeah. You know? I think that's the other thing. It's not just working out, discovering our parts and us and, and having the the empathy that what's got us here today is just trying to protect us. Like, yeah. you know, and having that real feeling of thank you for trying. Yeah, it wasn't the best idea to get smashed every night, but thank you but also the minute you stop or the minute you change something and again I would be fascinated if you kept any of your friends from that life because suddenly you everyone's in their boxes 
playing the roles they play, being the people they are. And the second you step out of yours and go, I don't want to play that role anymore, you make everyone else feel uncomfortable. Yeah. So was there anybody that stayed and went, no, I don't mind this, Josh. This is a cool Josh. Um, There's a few people that I still speak to, but only in a, we were really good mates if our paths cross for some reason but no i yeah. didn't stay friends with anyone really not friends no that mm. there's one guy who i'm gonna meet up with in a couple of weeks who was like my best mate but we have to go you know we go and meet and have a bit to eat every couple of months mm. um because you know we're not going to spend saturday nights together because our idea of fun's completely different so Mm. No, like very, and, and and by the way, a lot of those were rekindled after a number of years. I, you know, initially I just, did, I couldn't be anywhere no. near any of them. So it sort of ended very quickly. And by the way, over the years, many, many of them have, have phoned me or texted me out of the blue to ask for support and say they find mm. themselves. And, and some of those lads are sober now, you know, so. Yeah. And one thing that, um, and I don't know how to say this without it potentially sounding wrong or maybe insulting, which would absolutely not be the way. Like the type of guy you are, the way you show up, the way you speak, the way you look, like I think is perfect for this work because you are very relatable to men who might not feel they want to do this. So I've, I've mentioned my husband that he was in the military for 25 years. He's an engineer. He has a very analytical brain. Like we joke, have you read The Chimp Paradox? Yeah. Yeah, we joke that I'm 90% chimp and he's 90% human, like, because that's how different we are. Um, but working with guys like that, like if they're going to open up to anybody you would be the person that I think they would open up to and they do the work with. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate. I actually appreciate. It. I'm not offended by. It. I appreciate it. And like, it, I, I do recognize that in myself. I think a lot of that comes with a lot of work because, you know, if I look at who I was when I was two or three years sober, I was, I was, and when I say sober, I mean like two or three years of working on myself that yeah. just happened to be when I got sober I um I couldn't be myself so I was like sober Josh and did it and I was putting yeah. on a complete front whereas like now I I don't need to you know I've got a very sort of spiritual practice in my life I'm very sort of emotionally um like explorative and all that kind of stuff and I know that I have a knowing inside that I am that. So I don't really feel like I need to necessarily portray that. And mm. I think that helps, you know, so I don't, I don't change who I am. I don't dress a certain way to show that I'm into it. I just be whoever I want to be and I'm quite comfortable. But that's, yeah. like I say, that took a long time for me to get there. Really, mm. you know, I would only say that sort of happened in the last five or six years. Yeah. Yeah, but I think that's what people need. I think often people who are in the position of teaching or educating these kind of things often come from a place of zen and I have done it all and I've got it all and I am all knowing and all whatever. And it's intimidating because you can't match that. No. You can't. 
you know, you can't relate to that and think, well, how could I get like that? Or their transformation story is so like, and it's the same in anything in business and hearing people who've made loads of money. It's like, well, I was on the streets and I didn't have any money. And then suddenly I'm a billionaire. Like it just seems so far fetched. And I think having the, you have some really honest conversations. You, you are very honest about how much work you've done and what takes that work and all that stuff you've done, but also that you're still doing it and you're still showing up and it's not like you're not perfect. You are not the person who's like got it all sussed. Yeah. And again, that comes through learning, you know, because uh, like early on I did become that Zen person and mm -hmm. I got quite sort of, um, evangelical, really overly right. evangelical. You should do this, do this. Right. And I was like, do this. And if you do this and if you're struggling, then it's because you're not doing this. And over time, you know, I was humbled because a lot of the people that I'd finger pointed at saying you should be doing this, this and this, I had to go back to and say, oh, I feel very broken and I don't know why. And that, you know, yeah. and so that like sense of humility comes, or for me has come over a period of time, you know, where I've thought, you know what, I don't, I always say my journey has been, I got sober, looked for the answer, thought I'd found it went about telling everybody what the answer was, then broke down again and then realized, actually, I don't really know. I know very little. And, yeah. and I think what really helps me is that when people get like, if people contest what I think, I, d I don't fight too hard because I think I might change my mind next week. So I wouldn't yeah. try and convince me otherwise because I'll probably change my mind next week anyway because I'm, because yeah. that's been my experience over the years. You know, I've picked things up, they've worked, I thought they were the answer and then they stopped working and I have to find something else. So that coupled with, I've always been a bit of a, a rebel. So I'm always a bit, if everyone's saying it, I just get yeah. turned off and think I'm going <laughs> to, I've got to find another way because I don't want to say it, you know? So it's like, yeah. Yeah, so so it's a it's a it's a accumulation of things in in that sense, I guess. And I think that's the other thing that these tools and strategies that we use and the people that we look to, they those change over time. You know, something might work really well for us today, but actually in a few years' time, that that's passed and we're onto something else. So I'm really conscious of your time, and I really appreciate how much you've given me. What? are your non-negotiables at the moment in terms of your own mental health and your own sobriety and keeping sane? Like what, what is non-negotiable in your world? Well, I guess that like the first answer I want to give is like my morning routine, mm -hmm. but I miss it sometimes. So I'm lying if I say it's a non-negotiable, right? I think the non-negotiable for me is, is, is to, the best answer I can give you is to come clean as quickly as I can. That's the, that's the truth, is the moment I can start to feel a sense of unease in myself about something that I'm doing or a path that I'm on or something that I'm not doing is to try quickly to be honest with myself about it and then be honest with somebody else, one of my trusted circle about it so that I can quickly as I can mm. do, do the work on that, you know? Um, I would throw in the, you know, I have to do stuff on a daily basis really because uh, if mm. I don't, I lose my mind. And I guess to people that don't do any work on themselves, that sounds crazy. Um, but it's just so important. It's so important for me. You know, I get, I get tangled up very, very quickly. You know, so mm. I have to, I have to, un I guess that's the answer, isn't it? I have to untangle myself as quickly as I can, because mm -hmm. otherwise, it's going to be such a big tangled mess, and it's going to take a lot of work to undo. 
And yeah. when I let it get to that phase, I, that's when I know I've messed up. Yeah. And I think, like you said, I think there's a couple of things when it comes to working on yourself. One, I went through that smug, and this was years ago, this was before I got sober, I went through that whole smug of, how do people live without knowing this stuff? Like, yeah. like I was some guru. And then when I learned things about the drama triangle and and I would be like, in my head, thank Christ, not actually out loud, I'd be something, well, you're doing the persecutor in the drama triangle, but you don't know any better. So, and honestly, <laughs> yeah. like, there's all that. And I've had to have this conversation with my therapist of like, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. And she's like, okay, so how could you think that doesn't think like that? And, you know, so I think I go through that thing, but also I worry about people thinking I'm crazy because I have to do these things. But also in the same breath, I find them very self, in I feel like they're very self-indulgent. But the truth is, they're not self-indulgent to me. They are essential. If I don't meditate, if I don't journal, if I don't have a therapy appointment, if I don't do these things that I do to keep me, I guess I was going to say like on the straight and narrow, but that's not even that. To keep me remembering me and to keep coming back to me, then I would be in trouble. Yeah. And I think, look, if, if what we suffered from, suffered from, if what we struggled with was physical, Nobody would even, if we said, I have to do this hour process in the morning, Yeah, I have to do these injections. I have to like, I don't know, take this Physio. medicine. Yeah, yeah. I have whatever. to do, the, you know, the doc, then the nurse comes around and I have to do this. No one would be like, what's well, a bit self-indulgent? Like, cause no. they would see, okay, I can see the physical state you are in when you wake. And then I see where you are an hour later and it, and it makes perfect sense because ours is like an emotional sort of internal wounding for want of a better term. Uh, it, people find it a little bit more hard to fathom. But people that have known me a lot of my life, I think they see it now. They know where who I was and see where I was and see where I am now. And most of them today say to me, I might not understand what you do, but please just keep doing it. Yeah. Please keep doing you know, it. And can I just quickly finish in saying that um, one thing that keeps me going doing all this work is knowing the impact I'm having on my daughter and my stepchildren by me being so self-aware and doing all this work and, and, and the pride that that must give you bringing up children who are going to be very different to how we were brought up, were cared for in a completely different way. And I'm obviously, you know, making assumptions, but you know, my mum never sat there and talked to me about, you know, that it's okay to have these emotions, that it's okay to do these things. Like my, I dropped my daughter off at school this morning and she was in a bit of an arsy mood because she'd been rude to a teacher. And I talked about being, you know, how you shouldn't be rude and how you should be polite. And you don't know what that person's going through. And what if they've just found out their child's got cancer? What if they just find out that they've got cancer? Like, and I was being over the top, but I was like, you yeah. just don't know, do you? And well, you know, why do I have to worry about that? And I was like, because you have the brains to worry about it, to know about it, to understand it, to think about it. And and I just think the children, and I'm not sat here giving myself a godman because I can assure you I'm not winning any Mother of the Year awards by any stretch of the imagination. But when I think about the mental resilience that we were given growing up, or I was given for sure, was nothing compared to what we can do for them. Yeah. Yeah. And I always say, you know what, with because I you know I'm a, I'm I'm flawed as as a parent more than anything else, I think. Mm -hmm. Um my kids, I'm sure when they get older, will have to do a bit of work. But one thing that I'm confident of is that they'll be able to speak to me about it. Mm 
I'll be able to yeah. support them in that work and yeah. um, they'll come to me. I yeah. know, I can tell you now categorically that all six of my kids, if the shit ever really hits the fan in their life at any stage, when they pull their phone out of their pocket, it's me that they'll call straight away. Yeah. And, and that's, that's, that's what I want, you know, that's what I want. And, and, and when I leave this world, they'll be able to talk fondly of me. Mm. You know? I love that. Josh, thank you so much. You have been a pleasure as I knew you would be. Um, just one final question. So if you ever got to the point where you could drink again and it wouldn't be a problem, would you? Uh, if I got to the point where I could ever drink again and it wouldn't be a problem. Yeah, you could pick it up and put it down. Uh, look, I'm screaming to give you the answer no, because my life's so amazing and I wouldn't change a thing. That's the answer I'm going to give you now, but ask me tomorrow when I've had a day of it with the kids <laughs> and say, you can have a drink now and it'll all go away for the evening and it won't be a problem tomorrow morning. I'd be hard to turn down. Because, yeah. because all of the work that I do is to try and give myself some of that presence, you know? So I don't know. I don't know. I feel like the answer, I feel like the answer is no. No, I wouldn't. Um, but I don't know if that is the wholly honest answer. I love that. That's a perfect answer. <laughs> Thank you so much, Josh. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thank you.